morning as we open up 2 Thessalonians, I want to remind you of two problems that were going in and on in the Thessalonican church, or Thessalonican, or however you say that. It's all Greek to me, right? Get it? Because it's Greek. All right. In the Thessalonian church, don't laugh at that, my wife says always, because it encourages me, and then I do more. Pastor joke. See, I, I've got the worst of all worlds because I'm a pastor, and I'm a dad, dad jokes my goodness but then you add pastor jokes to dad jokes and it just gets exponentially worse but it's how i roll i think they're punny so in second thessalonians there are two problems and the problems are not bad jokes there are persecution has continued we read last week in acts chapter 17 that the church there in thessalonica has um, had an issue with uh, being persecuted from the very beginning Uh, paul was there for three weeks and during that time, they actually were arrested. Uh, the Roman authorities came in and said, what's going on? And uh, basically, they were accused. Uh, they came in and said, uh, these who have turned upside down the whole world have now come here, and they're doing the same thing. Now, if the world is upside down to start with from our advantage, from our viewpoint, uh, when Jesus comes in, he turns it right side up. But to the world that's enjoying the system that they live in and they want to stay in their sin and in the darkness, when you flip the light on, all of a sudden they are creeped out. You're turning their world upside down. You're messing with what they find comfortable. It's like, um, it's like if, you know, if you would ever go into a room where things are not going on that are not supposed to be going on there and you flip on a light, you know, people go, what in the world? You, know, you, you just messed up our situation. And so um, think about it this way. Uh, There's two problems in the Thessalonian area for Christians. Persecution not only continued, but in some ways it got more intense as they continued as a church. So every time that they wanted to have a gathering and study the scriptures, it would be disrupted every time. Um, If you wanted to live by your faith and your religious values in the culture they lived in, it wasn't accepted as the norm it was actually, um, they, they wanted to stop you from doing it because it was messing with their commerce. It was messing with the social order. And so Paul writes to a church here that is being persecuted, uh, but he wrote in the first chapter, as we studied last week, that he commends them. He actually thanks God for them because in the midst of this persecution, their faith is growing. You know, And many times we think, because we live in a nation where there is no, uh, at least threats of death for persecution, that it's actually a better place to be a Christian. But I would submit to you that this is the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian because it doesn't, in many ways, seem like it costs us anything. Jesus said to his disciples, count the cost. No man who goes to build a house doesn't first do the math and figure out if he's got enough money to pay for the building. And in the same way as believers, We are to count the cost. What is it going to cost you to be a disciple of Jesus? And are you willing to pay that cost? In our culture, many times people get saved under the notion that it won't cost them anything. And while salvation is a free gift, and I do wholeheartedly agree with that, and I would preach that, um, while it's a gift, it doesn't come without a cost. Uh, For some of us, it will cost us relationships with family members. For some of us, it will cost us a job when a boss or somebody above us asks us to lie or to compromise in our faith in some way. Uh, for some of us, it will cost us 
uh, relationships in our families or, or friends that we used to run with. That cost me a lot of friends. It almost cost me my family. God's still restoring that. My own uh, family, my parents were very aggravated at me when I wouldn't come and do some of the things I used to do with them because it was no longer something that I was okay with. It was something that for years had hindered me from walking with Jesus. And so I said, you know what? If my right arm causes me to sin, I'm cutting that bad thing off. And for me, that was some of the things I used to do with my family. And they're not things that, you know, it wasn't some, it wasn't like I was going out and making meth. I just decided I was no longer going to drink with them because it never led to any edification and I couldn't stop with one or two. I wanted more. So I said, you know what? This thing's hindering my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to stop. Just like if something in my life was hindering my relationship with my wife, I will get rid of it because I care about our relationship more than I care about that thing. And so what's going on here is this, this church is having to count the cost. And because of that, many of them are hardcore Christians. It's cost them their livelihood it's cost them their family, and they're okay with that because it's all worth giving up for the sake of having a relationship with the one who saved them and redeemed them and bought them back and loved them as a husband is supposed to love his wife. And so persecution continued, and then there was also a confusion about Jesus' return. You see, there was somebody that wrote a letter to the Thessalonian church and said, hey, Jesus already came back and you missed out on it. Now, if you're a Christian and you've placed your whole heart, your whole life, your faith, everything that you hope for on Jesus' return and him taking you to be with him, and then somebody comes along and said, hey, you, it already happened and you missed it, it would cause you to stumble, right? You know, if you, if you sat down on a chair, somebody said, hey, this is the best chair ever, it will never fall apart while you're sitting on it, and you sit on the chair and then somebody comes along and says, hey, we got a consumer report. This thing's been breaking on everybody. It always falls apart. You know, we have that with cars sometimes. People love the, you know, whatever car it is. And then a consumer report comes out and says, hey, this electronic uh, acceleration pedal will sometimes just go wide open and you'll go down the road and you can't stop the car. Well, I ain't buying that car. That's horrible. That could cause catastrophic death for my family. Okay, I'll get a different kind of car. You know, and if you've placed your hope in Jesus and then someone comes along and says, hey, his promise that he made to take you with him isn't really sure, you can't trust him, it's going to shake you. Do I really trust what people say about Jesus or do I trust what Jesus said? And we got to go through those things on our own. And so the, chapter one was really all about them growing in the faith and them growing in their love for one another. But Paul's going to write to them, I want to remind you that your hope is sure something that you can trust in, something that will not let you down. So in chapter 2, he clarifies the return of Jesus. Chapter 2, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ has already come. He says, don't be shaken. Don't be shaken in your mind. Don't be troubled in your spirit. We can be shaken by what people say to us and by what we give ear to. He says, don't listen to them. The things that I came and told you, you can still trust them. 
He says, uh, don't be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by the words that people speak to you or by letter as if it was a letter from us. Now he's going to say at the end of this letter, as he does many of his letters, in uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, since it's right there, he writes the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every letter, so I write. He signs it with his own hand. By this point in his ministry, other people are writing the letters for him, but he signs at the end because you guys remember in one of his one of his missionary journeys, he was actually stoned to the point that they thought he was dead, or many believe he actually was dead. Well, you don't go through getting stoned to death without having some scars. So many believe that maybe he wasn't able to write anymore, so his handwriting was horrible, so he had basically somebody write down for him these letters. But also, he had eye problems. He was well-known. Historical records show us that he had an eye problem Many believe because of the areas he had traveled through, the water he had drank, some of the diseases he took on because of the cost it costed him to share the gospel and fulfill his calling. So he couldn't see very good. So he would write with huge letters so you could never fit a letter on one page. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to save you some trouble. I have somebody write it that has pretty handwriting. Uh, But at the same time, at the very end of this letter, he signs his own name on it so that they would know, hey, this is Paul's jacked up handwriting. You know, <laughs> this is really from him. Perhaps the letter before that didn't have that. So he wanted to basically make it real for them. So he says, don't be shaken in mind or troubled. Let no one deceive you, verse 3, by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So he says, don't be shaken. And then he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, and in your Bibles, many of you, the word day there is actually capitalized. He's talking about that day, the day of the Lord, spoken of, we read in Daniel a few weeks ago, how the day of the Lord is an event that's been described in prophecy, and it's a day where everything that will come to a culmination, where the day of the Lord will come, the day of the Lord's judgment, the day of the Lord taking us out before the tribulation, and then, and then as a result of that, he says, I want to tell you that this is a specific fixed event in time, and God is going to have certain things take place leading up to this event. Much like we in our nation have certain holidays, but we know that the groundhog is not going to crawl out of the hole until, of course, February 2nd, right? He has to. I I like one meme I read this week said, I'm I'm a rodent, not a meteorologist. You know, who knows how to speak groundhog to ask him anyway? How do you know if he saw it? You know, I, I don't, anyway, that's my own deal that I struggle with. I'm like, we don't, we always say, man, meteorologists, they don't know what they're talking about. Let's go check out this book called the Farmer, Farmer's, Farmer's Almanac. I'm like, well, where do they get their stuff from? And then they're like, well, that didn't work. Let's go talk to a rodent after he gets out of his hole. You know, he's been sleeping for months. If I've been sleeping for three hours, don't ask me a question right after I get up. Right? Anyway sorry. That's my mind. 
you can pray for me. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. Now, what, what brings on the possibility of deception? What causes us to be deceived? Doubt, right? Fear, worry, not being able to see something for yourself, right? But the problem is, is that we are deceived when we uh, deny the truth. Um, the nation of Israel is set up for this deceiver to show up. And when he shows up, he's going to be able to do things that they are hoping in. He'll be able to do things that they're hoping for. And when he does them, they'll go, that's the Messiah. The, just the very fact that they denied that Jesus was their coming Messiah sets them up to be deceived by anyone who would show up and do all the things that they think God can do. Scripture tells us that the deceiver, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, he will come, and when he does, he'll actually be able to perform miracles. Now, many of us will go, well, how? He has to be from God if he can do that. Not necessarily. Think about Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses comes along and says, let my people go. He says, well, what if they don't believe that I'm the one that's sent by God? He goes, Moses, what do you have in your hand? That's what God said. What did he have? He had a staff. He said, throw it to the ground. And what did the, what did the staff do? It turned into a serpent. And when it did, it moved around. He said, now grab it by the tail. Now, at that point, I'm done. I'm not grabbing that thing. But he says, grab it by the tail. He grabs it by the tail. It's a staff again. Throws it down. It's a snake. Now, proves he's from God, right? So he goes to Egypt, he goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go, shows the sign, the wonder, and then one of the people, Janus and Jambres, one of the, the magicians in the household of Pharaoh, can do the same thing. So it proves that he's from God, Moses, but at the same time, the deceiver can always imitate what God can do. So it doesn't prove anything in Pharaoh's mind, but it doesn't prove anything to Pharaoh because Pharaoh, it says of him, he hardened his heart against the truth. Now we can deny the truth. God's given us free will, right? So harden your heart, harden your heart. Isn't that what God really means? But when we deny the truth, we set ourselves up to believe lies. So he says here, don't be deceived. He says this man of sin is revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that deceivers would come, wanting to give words of comfort telling people ahead of time the things that would happen so that when they came to pass, they would be encouraged and built up and strengthened and that they wouldn't give up on their faith. So in Mark chapter 13, verse 3, it says, As Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, which is a valley away from the Temple Mount, he said this. He says, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what be, will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed, or listen up, pay attention that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, 
I am he, and they will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. Seems like what Paul's writing, right? He says, don't be troubled, for such things must happen, and the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. These are the beginnings. The word there for sorrows means birth pangs. Like when you know your wife's getting ready to have a baby, she starts having Braxton Hicks. Does that mean the baby's coming yet? No, but the body's getting prepared to bring forth this child. But as the day approaches, they become more and more often until the point that she's having full-on contraction, it's time to get to the hospital. It's time to forget all this stuff on the way and panic and go to the hospital because the baby's coming. But he says, watch for yourselves, verse 9, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is you who speak, not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Don't be troubled but trust in the Lord. He'll give you the words to say. Now brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. That word endurance is important because it's what the Thessalonians are doing. They're experiencing persecution and yet they're enduring the hardship. They're continuing. So verse 14, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even those who are chosen, the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all these things beforehand. So Jesus told his disciples ahead of time, not for the sake of coming up with a day. There are many who have written books. Harold Camping was one of them. They wrote these books and they said it's going to happen on this date in the 1980s or it's going to happen on this date 10 years from now and they will set dates. Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels who are in heaven, but only my father. It's a set date. But he says that every time that the Lord's return is taught or is spoken, it's not to fuel people who speculate about what day it's going to be. It's always to comfort those who are wearied 
in their faith. It's always to inspire them and to lead them on. It's a light at the end of the tunnel, something they can look forward to. All the stuff that we just read there in Mark chapter 13, not looking forward to it. But what's going to come at the end is the hope that we have. That Jesus, that we trust by faith, that we have a relationship with through the Holy Spirit, we will no longer have to do it by faith because our faith will be sight. We'll be face to face with him. He will know us as we know him. It'll be just like you and I sitting here, just as real. But we'll be face to face and in perfect fellowship, not just with each other, but with Jesus himself, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so to these Thessalonian believers, that's a huge encouragement. So back in 1 Thessalonians, verse 5, he writes, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so he speaks of, he reminds them, he says, don't you remember what I, remember what I taught you? You who are parents, uh, you teach your kids things and then the rest of your life you spend your time reminding them, remember I taught you this, remember I taught you this, or remember I taught you this and this was wrong, so remember this new thing. You know, but the idea is that Paul, as a father, he sees these church, these churches that he's planted as, as tender children. And as he raises them up, he realizes that if Jesus taught his disciples things that they didn't remember or that they didn't understand the first time, that Paul is also going to have to stir them up by reminding them, remember I taught you this? Well, this, this thing that you're struggling with right now, that's what I was preparing you for. And Jesus, in the same way, is so faithful to, to teach us things. That's why I encourage you guys to read through your scriptures daily because you might be reading the same thing you read a year ago, but you may understand more of it now because now you've had to, do I actually believe this or not? You know, you've been tested in your faith. And so with, with Paul writing this, he says, don't you remember what I was teaching you while I was still with you? And now you know, he says, what is restraining that he may reveal in his own time. The restrainer. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the one that Jesus said he would send after he ascended. He would send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would comfort us. Would lead us into all truth. Um, he said the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the coming judgment for sin. But then he also said that he would restrain. The Holy Spirit is the restrainer. His very presence on earth, in us and around us, is what keeps things from completely collapsing. It's not world governments. It's not the right politician. 
It's not police and their rules. The Holy Spirit is what keeps this thing running. God himself holds the world together by the word of his power. But the Holy Spirit has restrained wickedness from going to its furthest degree, if you will. It seems like things are bad right now, but I don't know if you've noticed, they don't get to the worst, even though there's a ton of bad stuff going on. It could be worse because the Holy Spirit is still present here. But at one day, what's going to happen is the restrainer, the Holy Spirit is going to go, okay, and he's going to give away to lawlessness. He's going to let go. And he will still be here because in the tribulation period, that seven years we talked about in Daniel, people will still be saved. He will still convict people of sin and of need of a Savior, but they won't be as protected. Uh, Many who believe in Jesus during the time of the tribulation will give their life for their faith. But the restrainer will let go. The lawless one will set up his kingdom. And it says there in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, the Holy Spirit, who now restrains will do so. He will restrain, restrain until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. He will be empowered by Satan to do Satan's bidding. And at that point, he will do so with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteousness, excuse me, unrighteous deception among those who perish. There will be many who will perish believing what he says because, look at this, they did not receive the love of the truth. If you reject the truth, if you reject Jesus, you're setting yourself up to be deceived, and there will be judgment for that. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you find pleasure in unrighteousness? Do you find pleasure in wickedness? Because if you do, what you'll find out is that it's because you have not received the love of the truth. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about this same idea. You ever heard that old country song? I think it's a country song. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. I won't sing it because you guys will laugh at me. But it's true. You have to believe something, otherwise you'll believe something else. There are many people that say, I don't know if God exists, but I'm just going to err on the side of, you know, I don't really have any beliefs. But everybody believes something. And you choose what you believe. So what I want to point out here in Romans is that in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes notice that description salvation for anyone who believes we are all made in the image of god but we are not all children of god the church those who believe are a called out assembly made holy by his presence and we have been given the right 
because of our faith in Jesus, to become children of God. But if you do not believe in Jesus, you're not a child of God. You're his creation. You were made in his image, but you are not his child. He says, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just, those who have been justified, shall live by faith. And then he contrasts in verse 18 and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is revealed or manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but instead they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God reveals. God is light. If you walk away from the light, you walk into darkness. You live in a neighborhood where there's a street light, and you walk away from the street light, what is there? There's darkness. That's why when the street light came on years ago, parents said, all right, when the street light comes on, you get your butt home. That's because nothing good happens in the dark. So when we walk away from Jesus, we walk away from the truth, even when it's presented to us. When the non-believer is presented with the gospel and they deny it, they are accountable to that. When you look at creation and you say, this is an awesome accident, you're darkening your heart by denying the truth that there's a creator that created it. God presents himself to the whole world just in his creation. If you look at the things that grow and the way that it grows and the way that we can master manage and multiply god is seen in those things i still don't know how anyone can can go through a pregnancy and a baby be born and a, a dad or a mom hold a baby and not see god's handiwork man we did a good job making a baby what did you do you, you ate you, you didn't, you know, hopefully do drugs or something while you're pregnant. But I mean, I don't know anybody here that can go, well, you know, once in a while I'd lay on my side because that makes sure their ears grow. And, you know, like we can come up with all kinds of ideas, but we just wait. And God does the work. There's this incubation that goes on and masterful connection of neurons and protons and brains and our brains are connected to all of us and yet our spirit is laid within us we are fearfully and wonderfully made there's no escaping that but when you say it's all by accident you blatantly on purpose say nope god didn't do it it was an accident and when you start believing in accidents then your purpose and your hope goes away and then anything goes anything because what does it matter anyway we're all beautiful accidents so in romans he says therefore in their darkening their hearts and turning themselves away from the truth when you deny the truth you believe a lie verse 24 god gave them up to uncleanness 
in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. What's the lie? Paul's going to refer to it in 2 Thessalonians. The lie is the very thing that happened in Genesis. When God said, you will worship me, I made you in my image, God says. And we start to make God in our own image. What did Satan whisper to Eve? He said, God knows in the day that you eat of that fruit that he told you not to, that you'll become like him. I can be like God. And we say, well, I don't want to be God. But we do. When we deny him leading our life, we're making ourselves to be the one that's worshipped over him. And, and when we deny God in pride, we essentially make ourselves God. We follow our own hearts, which are cruel masters, by the way. We, de- we follow our own desires, our own lusts. And before you know it, we deny that, that God's creation even makes a difference. We don't see order in society. We, he actually even says that they, as a result of that, instead of having relationships with the opposite sex, we choose the same sex, and then we receive the punishment of our sin even when we sin against our own bodies. The things that happen as a result of a homosexual relationship are actually God's judgment. Our bodies weren't made to work that way. And as a result, diseases are transferred and, and bodies are given over to things like HIV and AIDS and they're transmitted because we deny God's lordship over the order of creation even. So, when you choose to deny the truth, you believe a lie, whether you think so or not. And then he says, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Now, like Pharaoh, we have the choice. Harden our heart against the truth or believe the truth. But eventually, we believe the lie enough times that we can't turn around anymore. Somehow that's how it works. And then God sets in place what we've chosen that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. He says, but we, verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, God cares about you, he says, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or letter. Every one of these chapters, there's just three, ends with a prayer. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation the word there means comfort and good hope by grace may he comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word may he establish you may he set your feet on the rock on solid foundation because you guys are being shaken he says and i don't be shaken don't be troubled don't be wearied This world is trying to get you to stop believing in Jesus, and I'm here to tell you, you can believe him, you can trust him, you can anchor your life to him, and he will never let you crumble. But you got to hold on while he's holding on to you. So, 
I want to point out what he says here. In verse 13, brethren beloved by the Lord, remember when your faith is shaken that you are loved by God. You're loved by him because you believe in his son. Because you believe in his son, you trust in his word, and then you realize all the more he's giving you direction. And that you're loved by him, so he gives you direction. Remember this too, he says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation. He chose you. Now scripture teaches two things. I have a responsibility, and yet God picked me and he's going to do it. But I think one of the reasons that many people get twisted up is they go, well, if God chose me, does that mean he didn't choose that guy or that girl? I don't know about that. But what I do know is that he chose me. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever played kickball in elementary school, when you get chose, it's the best thing ever. Nobody likes to be the last guy in line. I've been there, trust me. I was not the tallest. I was not the fastest. We played with one of those big red balls, like this big. My legs were this long. So if I kick that thing, I, the ball's not going, I am. The equal and opposite reaction, I didn't know about Newton's law yet, you know. But I'd kick that ball, and I'd trip over it, and then I'd get out at home. So the next game, I didn't get picked a whole lot. But the God of creation, before creation was even made, the Godhead got together and said, hey, they're going to fail at this. They're going to deny me. They're going to rebel. What are we going to do about this? They're going to need a Savior. And Jesus, before the foundations of the earth, said, I will go. I will die in their place. I will live the life that they, can, that they can't. I will save them. And then he picked us. Before, we, when we were in our mother's womb, God was aware of our thoughts. He was aware where our life would go. He knew the mistakes I would make. He knew what the th the things I would fail at, that I'm the most aggravated at myself about, that I was surprised about, he knew. And he chose us anyway. Not because we deserved it, but because he just genuinely loves us. The world doesn't know that kind of love. He chose me. He died for me while I was in the act of sinning against him. Before I did it, and he knew I would do it, he died in my place. I just can't wrap my mind around that. But then he says, he chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How do we receive it? We believe it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God and agreeing with it. And it comes through repentance. It starts with saying, Lord, I recognize that this thing is true and I recognize that I have not done any of it and I don't deserve your love or salvation, but I want to turn around. I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to start. My life's all jacked up, but I, I know that you chose me, and I know that you love me. What do I do now? And he says, believe. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent, Jesus. And from that point on, when you believe in him, you don't just believe that he existed, but you believe that he's the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And then you believe his word and you start doing it. Just the one thing you know, just do it. And then he'll give you more. To him who is faithful in the small things, you'll be given more. And he'll teach you more and then you do those things. And then as a result of that, there will be this building up of a relationship with him by faith 
and by works and by words, and then you're so invested, why would you even turn back? You've lost your life, and you've gained it for eternity. So, Paul writes this chapter to encourage them. God chose you. God will judge. The thing is that we get so focused on the fact that God loves us and will forgive us. And that is true. But in the things that we will not give to him and repent of, there will be judgment. And if I could ever err on the right side, it's going to be, I'm going to embrace his love. I'm going to do all that I can to avoid judgment. Not because I have to anymore. Jesus' work on the cross was enough. But because now I get to obey him because I don't have to to be saved. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to to earn his favor. I couldn't earn his favor. So he says there at the end, may Jesus Christ himself, our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish you. Paul's already written, don't be shaken, don't be troubled. But then he writes, may God not let you be shaken. May he not let you troubled. May he establish you in every good word and work. So, this morning we're going to take communion. We're going to take communion 